Welcome to the Sheila Kham Extractive Podcast. We continue our discussions on the subject matter of value addition in the mineral oil and gas space. My guest today is Mr. Francis Gattari, who is the CEO of Rwanda Mines Petroleum and Gas Board. In his capacity, he also serves as a member of cabinet in that country. His portfolio is natural resources. The Mining Review Africa voted Francis Gattari as the year 2020's Africa Lead Minister for Natural Resources. I was not surprised. In the times that I have known Mr. Gattari, he has struck me with his sense of purpose. Francis, welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. It's very nice to have you. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sheila, for having me. I am privileged to be on this very important platform today with you. Thank you. So I want to start by asking you a question because you are my last guest on a series of six interviews on the subject of value addition. But a few of my guests commented that value addition policies are somewhat akin to resource nationalism and therefore contrary to the notion of free trade. I suspect you do not concur. And so I wanted to get your sense of how you feel about that point of view. Thank you, Sheila. Especially, I thank you for observing that I do not agree with that narrative for a number of reasons. I do not know who invented the notion of resource nationalism, but whoever did it was a very clever person because what effectively it has done is caused many policy leaders in the natural resources sector to be guilty about claiming what should naturally be theirs. By putting resource nationalism as a narrative, it paints a very negative picture of nationalism, which is political, of naturalization, which is a terrible thing to do in business. But in actual fact, let's face it, every country, particularly a developing country, that has natural resources, aspires to make as much value out of the endowment of those natural resources as possible, particularly to finance their economic development. Value addition, therefore, is a way to claim additional value from those natural resources. For many countries in Africa, the desire to have value addition goes way back a long time particularly to colonialism, where many African countries believe that their natural resources were exploited for the benefit of their colonizers and for the development of their colonial economies outside Africa. There is therefore a desire by every country, by every citizen of a country that has natural resources to see as much of the value associated with those natural resources retained in the country. Let's face it, the natural resources, when they are commodities as extracted, they are cheap, no matter how valuable they may seem to be. The additional value is created farther downstream through extra processing that takes place. So wherever that processing takes place, that's where the additional value is retained. So value addition is the claim by the citizens of every country to see as much of their value associated with processing retained in their economies, giving employment, 
purchasing inputs and contributing to additional uh, economic activities in, the, in, in this country. So I disagree with the notion that claiming additional value in the country where natural resources are extracted is equated with resource nationalism or anything negative that uh, nationalism or naturalization is associated with. Now, free trade is a relationship between countries trading with each other. Free trade does not restrict adding value or industrializing best the natural commodities developed in the country. So there is no contradiction between adding value to the natural resources and participating as a citizen of the world in the free trade environment, whether in Africa or around the world. So you are totally right, Sheila. I do not agree with the narrative of resource nationalism associated with value addition. That's wonderful. So in those two opposing views, you have tackled several issues, the one being resource national per se and what it is. Somewhere down the road in my series, I'm going to tackle that subject matter of resource national because it keeps rearing its heads in different ways. But what I take away for now is that policymakers in Africa and anywhere in the world for that matter have a right to define what value addition is and that it is not acceptable that an external viewpoint comes and defines for African policymakers what value addition is and should be. And that for you, it is a citizen's right, a country's right to claim all the value inherent in its natural resources. I'm going to hold that thought and move to the next question, which speaks to your second reference, which is that of free trade. So some of my guests and colleagues also have suggested that value addition is unlikely to succeed without some semblance of domestic market. And here domestic market might be the Rwandese market, or for instance, it might be the East Central Africa community or SADC or the entire Africa region. Because their view is that this domestic market is essential for incubating uh, trade. And I wonder how you feel the Africa Free Area Trade Agreement might help overcome this challenge of limited markets. Sheila, there is some truth in that, but not completely. On the one hand, the African countries who wish to, or let's say any country now that is extracting natural resources, minerals particularly, that wishes to add value is coming into a global value chain with a disadvantage because there is already an established network of the global value chain that many of the mineral commodities that are extracted in our countries are participating in. And this value chain has been operational for a long time and has inherent relationship between parties or actors who have very much strengthened their respective positions. So yes, when you look at the economics of it, there's an inherent disadvantage for anybody that is coming into the value addition industrialization model at this late stage. However, that's not sufficient reason for one not to start because especially as an African country, Rwanda is a signatory to the Africa continental free trade area. So have many other countries as well. But we are also signatory to the 
Africa Mining Vision, which is 11 years old, by the way, has been in place a long time. And it articulates specifically what we are claiming here, that natural resource endowed countries have an opportunity to achieve industrialization best initially on leveraging those resources. However, it also is very clear that this is only practically possible when done at the regional level. Why? Because there is no single country that can have that level of integration from a mineral resource to processing plants midstream, downstream, and to the end products. However, at the regional level, that is possible, leveraging each other's comparative advantages, strengths, and weaknesses. So in your view then, this Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement notion essentially expands what is otherwise a very limited market base at national level and increases it by opening up countries and allowing them to play to their strength. Let's assume that that in fact becomes manifest because as you yourself know, it's one thing to have a regional protocol is another to have laws, systems, infrastructure to make it happen. Let's assume that all that is in place and that indeed we succeed. Where then do we find, how do we then deal, for instance, with Europe, where they are looking for raw materials and there are partners in other areas? And then in the China, where they have also over the years ramped up production. How do we see ourselves interacting with these other regions of the world, knowing that, to your point, fundamentally, the responsibility of African leaders is to look after African economies, but then the European leaders do the same. How does the future look like in a place where everybody is strong, in other words? Mm. I think we have an opportunity here, Shira, because we have witnessed over the last 50 years the movement of international capital going to where economies have new and emerging advantages that favor industrialization. 50 years ago, it was Europe and North America. Today, it's Asia. And tomorrow, it could be and should be Africa. In fact, today should be Africa. And we have got some specific things that can cause that to happen. One is industries thrive on taking advantage of economies of scale. In Africa, we have all these natural resources which are being extracted and shipped elsewhere, but consolidating them and aggregating them with others coming from the rest of the world. And Asia today has that comparative advantage because they get all these resources from around the world aggregated there. Working with our regional neighbors, we can be able to establish that kind of economies of scale, which currently individually, each country is shipping to Asia. Then we can begin to see the cost of processing or cost of production coming down. Moreover, the cost of labor also is fairly competitive, not to mention that technology is commoditized and available. In many of these processing facilities, the technology is being used is not highly protected by intellectual property rules. It's available as a public good. And so I believe very strongly that the capital 
that invests in Europe, that invests in Asia to carry out the kind of value addition processing of natural resources that come from Africa, that capital can shift to Africa and contribute and become aligned with our objective to add value here on the ground. What we need to do and what we are continuing to advocate for is for our regional countries to begin to harmonize not only our policies and rules, but also our industrial aspirations so that we can begin to see as a region developing together, not only as a single individual country. That's wonderful. So I wanted to speak with you about China. China is very unique in many ways. It's probably in recent history, the only country that is potentially capable of dominating both the financial markets, the natural resource production space, but also the consumer goods market size. And so China represents both an opportunity for Africa to procure finance or at least an alternative source of finance, but also China is Africa's competitor in the production of raw materials, whether it's gold, coal, copper, gas, etc. That said, China is also potentially a source of market for goods coming out of Africa. At the same time, China is pushing her own manufactured goods into African countries. And so I wanted to get a sense from you of how you think Africans should be engaging China in a space where your American and European critics feel that relative to themselves, China is for all intents and purposes staying in Africa rent-free. Is this true? How can we deal with China in a way that we don't repeat the same mistakes that we made dealing with the Europeans in which they got the better of us? First of all, what China has been able to do over the last 30, 40 years is incredibly amazing and it's admirable. It is an inspiration for every developing country that aspires to change its destiny and become a developed nation. So China should be looked at, first of all, as an inspiration for what is possible for anybody or any country that thought achieving international development and become a developed nation was out of their reach. So that's very important to continue to see how China has done it and learn from it. Secondly, China, as it continues to grow, it also changes. The economics that made it possible for China to become the manufacturing hub of the world is increasingly changing. Some of the advantages of low costs of production, particularly labor technology, are also changing, and it will not always be the same. And all that provides an opportunity to other countries particularly in Africa. We're already witnessing that happening in Southeast Asia where many economies are feeding off of those industries that no longer find China to be particularly competitive and relocating or associating themselves with subsidiary operations in Southeast Asia. We are seeing that beginning to happen in East Africa, particularly here in Rwanda, 
where some industries are relocating from China to East Africa, including to Rwanda, because they are finding an advantage that is no longer existent in China. So as China changes, as the economy of China changes, there are many things that will want to relocate, many industries that will want to relocate outside China into Africa. And we should be ready and aware of this and look out particularly for which of those industries uh, it might be. I think that the natural resource processing sector is one of those industries because we already have a natural advantage of these natural resources being present here. And the cost of transportation is already high and we should begin to see the technologies we look at to the process here. Lastly, let me say that China, as it grows, it also relies on the rest of the world as markets. Now, as it becomes an increasingly important country for the whole world, I think that other economies will also want to diversify their sources of those materials that they are getting from China, not to mention African countries. We have already seen this, Sheila, during the COVID pandemic, that many countries are looking for not only alternative sources of materials they are getting from China, but looking for them closer to home. I think it's important for African countries also to begin to look at where close at home, can we not only manufacture what we want, but also source them. And I think this industrialization approach that leverages our own natural resources is one way to produce those alternative materials that the rest of the world may wish to buy from us instead of China, but also for ourselves to diversify sources of our own consumer goods. So in that response, there are several takeaways, but the one that interests me the most is your response, which is to say, we are wrong to think China's development trajectory is static and that it is always going to be informed by the same dynamics. That as China becomes affluent, one of the unintended consequences of that is that labor will become expensive. And as it does, China's competitiveness, in, at least in the production space, will diminish. And that what we should be thinking about is how we translate that into an opportunity. And you are quite right, of course, because whether it's the United States or Europe, these regions of the world started off on a lower base, able to produce at home. And as the economies became wealthy and people's disposable incomes grew, and the cost of labor grew, they basically, they basically rendered themselves uncompetitive. And so China is not going to be an exempt. But I do want to press you. And if I may, I do wish for you to wear your political hat. And I wish to ask you a simple question. When the African leadership ponders relationships with China, is China getting a pass? relative to European counterparts or American counterparts? Is China, for that matter, taking undue advantage of a position relative to African countries when negotiating with African governments? It's a very interesting question, Sheila, because uh, 
what you would read in the public domain, particularly coming out of you know, Western media, the framing would seem like China is taking advantage of Africa. And there are many things that said about that. But also China's framing is that they are different and you know, they do not have the history of exploitation of African countries, whether through colonialism or other neocolonial methods. And therefore, they, are, they should be better than Western partners. But what it all shows is that everybody is looking out for their interests and providing a narrative that suits them and gives them an advantage. I think, in my view, it doesn't matter whether it's a Western country, Eastern or wherever. What matters most is when one's interests are clear and when one negotiates on the basis of eco and fairness and driven by transparency in expressing their objectives and interests. I do not believe that China will necessarily represent African interests when Africans become either negligent or become reluctant to represent the public interest and want to look after themselves. In the same way that I do not think that any Western partner will look out for African interests when individual African leaders are not themselves doing that. And so the responsibility rests on us. One, to be clear on our interests that we are looking for and that we are representing. And number two, being steadfast in representing those interests, particularly when things get tough because there are many disadvantages against us. And one of the approaches that leaders have advocated, including our own leader in Rwanda, has been to work together. Individual countries of Africa will always find themselves at a disadvantage dealing with more powerful nations or interests around the world. However, when a group of African leaders, a group of African countries work together, they become more powerful than you know, the, the sum of the nations that they are representing. And so working together eventually will be the only way to represent our collective African interest. But there is no one that will do it for us if Africans can do it themselves. Mm, that is absolutely true. We have to be masters and mistresses of our own destiny. What I do like in your response is that it isn't really about what China or the United States or Europe does for that matter. On the contrary, it is more about what the collective on the African continent does to position themselves relative to others. I mean, this to me, I think if we understand that fundamentally, then we won't begrudge our other potential trading partners, their policies. On the contrary, we will recognize them for what they are and we will find the necessary policy and institutional tools to respond. I have spent a bit of time tapping your wisdom as an African leader, but I do want to move inland into Rwanda. Of course, your country has bucked the trend in more ways than one, the result of which is that Rwanda is admired and envied by many for its achievement. And frankly, I would be remiss if I didn't acknowledge the 
successful leadership of both your head of state, but also cabinet members like yourself, past and present, for what you have done for Rwanda. I think I speak for many Africans in saying that while nobody, no one policy is perfect, a lot of Rwanda's achievements remain in envy of many. And so I would like to just come and speak with you about Rwanda itself. So I wanted to understand in the context of minerals, does Rwanda have a policy for insisting that minerals be processed before exported? And if so, what has been the response of investors to these policies and how does the country work with investors to convince them and offer them a value proposition that means the policy becomes a win-win for both the country and investors. Thank you, Sheila, first of all, for the introductory recognition you have made about Rwanda's progress and the way this country has been able to achieve what we have achieved. And by mentioning our leadership, uh, President Kagame and other leaders that work with him, signals an important point about the role of leadership in transforming not only a country, but a society, a community of people, and eventually achieving development. And so leadership is very important. But how that leadership does things is even more important. And one thing that we consider valuable for us is that we look at things in a very pragmatic way. In a pragmatic way, which means practical way, addressing practical problems as they exist or as we see them. So one thing that in Rwanda we try to avoid is to look at generalized problems and then looking at generalized solutions. Rather, we like to look at the specific nature of a problem as how it appears to us in Rwanda, and then looking at what could be the practical solution that is relevant for us in Rwanda, even if we may draw from generalized principles that are applicable elsewhere. So that's the approach also with the issue of value addition and mineral processing. We start from recognizing what the existing status quo is like. So the existing status quo is that the mineral resources being traded within an international value chain that is highly vertically integrated. What does it mean? It means that some of the mining companies have close relationships with processing companies midstream that also have commercial relationships with more processing companies further downstream that make end components that come from the associated minerals. And so to achieve value addition in the country in a practical way, one must recognize that network and understand how it works and also see how we can incentivize that network to work differently in Rwanda without necessarily creating conflict with the investors that are in the sector. 
So three things we have done. One, we have incentivized the already existing investors in the sector so that the, the processing facilities that either existed outside Rwanda could relocate or to establish other competing and alternative processing facilities here in Rwanda. And we are beginning to see that happening, particularly in the technology metals, in tin, which is very important, in tantalum, which is very important, and some valuable metals like gold and other gemstones. The second thing that we have done is to allow the processing and value addition companies, particularly refineries, smelters, and others, to also own assets in the mining sector, but to be transparent about it. Why? Because we found that if you don't allow them and you think that they will only trade with third parties, it creates an environment where companies begin to work not necessarily transparently, but it also creates an incentive for companies to try and hide their costs and you begin to deal with complicated issues of transfer pricing. Thirdly, what we have done is we have incentivized as many of the local companies as possible to participate in this value chain because as many domestic entrepreneurs learn about this business and they participate in it, you have a better chance for the spin-offs from what the operations in the mining sector are to other industries, what people often refer to as not just the backward forward linkages, but the side, side linkages. Sheila, we all know that many companies who are involved in mining have procurement relationships with companies around the world. And there are advocates who say that maybe there is even more opportunity for industrialization associated with procurement of input materials rather than the value at the incremental value addition of the, of the minerals. I agree that there is a lot of uh, value to be made in those uh, procurement related relationships, but it does not have to be exclusive of the need to contribute to the value addition of minerals. And in Rwanda, we are pragmatically incentivizing both one, value addition and two, local procurement to satisfy the input materials that go into these industries. So thank you for sharing that because one of the things that have always troubled me about the policy space, especially in the space where you interface with investors is that many of the policies and laws I read on the continent imply that the country's value proposition is self-evident and a case has not been made pragmatically to coin your phrase and explicitly. The other assumption which I find problematic is that if a company is a mining company, by definition, it adds value, which also is not true. And what you're saying, which is that Rwanda doesn't just talk to the mining company. It also talks to those with whom in the metal processing space, the mining companies have a relationship. I find it counterintuitive 
to essentially ask a mining company to value add when in effect all they are doing is selling to somebody. It seems to me more logical to speak to those with whom they have the relationship. And so I quite like the idea of saying, what do we know about the footprint of this company? What do we know about the extent of its vertical upstream or downstream integration? And what does that tell us about the conversations we should have with them? And what the value is that we should place on the table to incentivize them. And I think that if more countries take that pragmatic and strategic approach, chances are that value addition will succeed than has hitherto been the case. But we're coming to the end of our conversation. And I have one last question for you, if I may. And it has to do with translating what you call incentivizing and pragmatism into practical interventions in a specific area. So we know, of course, that in many parts of the continent, security of energy supply or insecurity of energy supply is a real problem, as is connectivity and lack of skills. And I just wondered if you could share with the listeners Rwanda's approach to specifically tackling these bottlenecks to value addition, any one of them, skills, energy supply, and ICT infrastructure. Yes, indeed, these utilities related bottlenecks, um, they come across as impediments to value addition. But in actual fact, we find that they are the most easiest, perhaps, to fix. Let's give issues of infrastructure, for example, like energy, ICT, roads, and and water, and others. They are very, they are hard infrastructure-related investments, which can be done quite easily with additional investments. And for the case of Rwanda, we have been over the last 20 years, been investing heavily in uh, in infrastructure. Rwanda's road network covers every country down to the village level, true also with water, uh, both natural water as well as piped water, uh, reaching over uh, 70% of uh, of our household. Uh, ICT is one of the um, infrastructure networks that were established in Rwanda well before uh, many other countries were uh, even considering this. Actually, we, we participated in infrastructure networks of fiber optic cables across the country as early as uh, 20 years ago when we were discussing this topic under uh, NEPAD uh, when it was just coming up. So today, this is being integrated into more wireless infrastructure uh, for ICT. Um, I think the skills sector has been the more complex ones uh, because it takes time, highly specialized, and also requires a long time to train someone to get specialist level of skills. And so while we have continued to improve and invest in our education system, Rwanda has also taken a proactive approach to open our labor market to the international expertise. Rwanda is probably the first country in Africa that allowed any African 
expert who wants to live and work in Rwanda to do so freely and free of charge. Uh, we have also opened up easy access in terms of international travel, probably the only country in Africa that allows any citizen of anywhere in the world to walk in and get visa on arrival and see many of those who come initially as, as visitors choosing eventually to live and, and work in Rwanda. So, so these hard infrastructure-related things are easier to, to fix. What investors tell us, Shida, is that, yes, you can fix those, but the more valuable things that often are bigger impediments to doing business in a country are the soft ones, the administrative red tape, the behavior of, of public officials with respect to transparency and, uh, and service delivery. And that's where Rwanda has been putting a lot of effort in differentiating ourselves. One, by ensuring that the administrative red tape is removed and doing business and facilitating doing business is streamlined, reducing the kind of procedures that are required not only to register and start the business, but to operate the business and to access different services. By bringing all these facilitation services together into a single entity, you may have had an institution called the Rwanda Development Board, which is an integrated institution that brings all services that are required to interact with a business person from the starting of a business throughout the entire life cycle of a business to the closure of a business so that they never have to interact with anyone else except that institution. We've invested a lot into ensuring that there's transparency in conducting business. Rwanda has absolutely zero tolerance on corruption, particularly by public officials. It's all these extra costs that investors often say are the major impediments for doing business in countries. These are the ones we've been paying a lot of attention to and make sure that there is no hidden cost to doing business, but rather it's, it's easy, it's smooth, it's enjoyable and unpredictable. That's wonderful. And so you've taken the listener right through the policy and decision-making process to implementation, because it's one thing to have a grand vision. It's another to have policies and laws. It's another to recognize the glue that binds all of that. And to your word, it is the softer things, the experiences that people have with Rwanda when they come into the country, it is that experience which fundamentally translates into whether they stay or come back. And so on that note, Minister Katari, thank you very much for joining the Shirakama Extractive Podcast. It was wonderful speaking with you and no doubt our paths will cross again, but this time most likely in the streets of Kigali. Thank you. Thank you very much, Sheila. I really enjoyed this and I look forward to participate in your future podcast as well.